0: Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. And on this podcast, we teach responsible Bible and Christian theology. Ron, we're in the book of Jonah, and we've been on quite a journey so far, haven't we?
1: Yeah. In the first episode, we started into the book of Jonah, and very briefly, what we learned was that God called Jonah, a prophet in Israel, to go preach to, once again, that nasty, hated, and despised (laughs) group of Assyrians, and specifically the ones in the city of Nineveh. Jonah found the whole things so distasteful that he literally hopped on a boat, headed in the opposite direction bound for the farthest point he could go away from Nineveh But he could not escape God, and the ship finds itself in a storm. Jonah admits he's probably the reason for the storm, and the whole thing will go away if the crew throws him overboard. The crew tries not to do that, but eventually they do what Jonah recommended. They throw him overboard, and the storm stops. So the sailors, they were already more than a little worried when they heard Jonah served God, who actually made the sea. But they are truly impressed when they see the storm (laughs) stop. So then headed into episode two, the question is, what happened next? And that's what we learned in the last episode. God took over. God provided the fish to swallow Jonah. God had the fish transport Jonah to shore. Uh, we're not told in what level of comfort or not. But <laughs> God had the fish spit Jonah up on the shore three days later. And we see Jonah's response. That's the long psalm or prayer that we see there in chapter two. Jonah thanks God for the rescue being swallowed by a large sea creature in the middle of a sea storm doesn't sound like a good day. And (laughs) nevertheless, Jonah recognized it for what it was. It was God's deliverance. And finally, in that last episode, we spent just a little time briefly with the way Jesus used this story. Jesus tells the crowds the sign they will get is the sign of Jonah And among other things, he seems to be talking specifically about his death and his resurrection three days
0: later. In this episode, we get to discover what God is going to do with this prophet Jonah. God rescued Jonah from drowning, for which Jonah, as you said, Ron, seems to have been thankful. And God returned Jonah safely to the shore. So the question is, is the nightmare over? (laughs) (laughs) Does Jonah get to walk away? Does God relieve Jonah from his prophetic duties? Or is God going to give Jonah a second chance to follow those instructions to express God's divine concern for Israel's hated enemies in Nineveh by going personally to that city? Well, let's find out.
1: In chapter three of the book of Jonah, the scene shifts, but we don't know exactly where or when the action that follows takes place. Are we back in Israel? Has Jonah returned to wherever he was when the book opened and heard God's command the first time? How much time has passed since the fish spit Jonah up? Don't know. The narrator takes us directly to what is essentially a recap of God's initial command to go and preach to Nineveh. If you remember, the first time God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh, he said, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it because their wickedness has come to my attention. Jonah had problems even with that. Now the story basically starts over with wording that is almost identical to that first verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time get up. Go to Nineveh, that
0: great city, and preach to it the message that I give you. Yeah, the similarity in wording between the opening of chapter 1 and the opening of chapter 3 is meant to give the idea that Jonah is right back where he started. Okay. The situation has been reset. Jonah's back where he started. But of course, we notice that here, when he gets his instructions for the second time, something has been added. God not only says that Jonah is to preach to Nineveh, he is to preach quote the message I give you. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that raises a question is is that is that detail is that difference significant? Uh-huh. I think probably so because the close parallel invites us to notice the differences. So Jonah may be back where he started in a sense, but now He has to accept that God is concerned for Nineveh and that God has him on a tighter verbal leash, so to speak. God will tell him what to say, the message that I give you.
1: So it's almost as if God doesn't trust Jonah anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it certainly may seem that way. Jonah resigns himself to obey God, at least as far as his actions go. And and we want to underscore that, at least as far as his actions go, we still don't know what Jonah was thinking. But there's nothing specific to suggest that he liked this idea the second time any more than the first.
1: (laughs) Right. He's just going to go ahead and do it.
0: Yes, he did obey God. But was it out of a real change in Jonah toward the Ninevites? Or was it out of self-preservation that was maybe born of fear given what happened to him the last time he didn't obey? Let's don't do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we just don't know that yet. Is the narrator toying with us, keeping us guessing? We have a main character, but what do we know about the character's character at this point? (laughs) Well, we have to wait because the scene shifts again before we even get to the next verse.
1: John, it's been implicit in everything you said up to now, but I just wanted to check in here. It seems this is not just a story about God's message to Nineveh. This is also a story about how the prophet responded. In other words, everything we've heard suggests I should be paying attention to what Jonah does and what Jonah thinks. Up to this point,
0: you're exactly right. This is a story about what's going on with Jonah, and of course, that's going to get all the more clear as we get into chapter four. We just haven't gotten there yet. But how Jonah is processing all of this is something that is what we're supposed to learn from, okay, as we work our way through this story. We're supposed to follow what's going on with Jonah.
1: Got it. Well, after all that Jonah has been through, and after all that we, the readers, have been through as we followed the story. He finally arrives in the great city of Nineveh. The language points to the fact that this was a large and important city, but also important to God. And the text adds that it was a three days walk or journey. Uh, Many of the translations try to interpret the phrase three days journey. Uh, NIV, for example, says it took three days to go through it. ESV says three days journey in breadth. Uh, NRSV says a three days walk across, but literally the text only has a three days walk. So, John, this is interesting. It's not the first time we've heard the phrase three days here, but
0: uh, what's what's going on at this point? Yeah, the three days we've already met uh, when Jonah was in the fish, and here we get another three days. In this case, the three days walk language about Nineveh is probably not... A physical geographical description of the city of Nineveh. Archaeologists have done extensive work in Nineveh, and we've got a really good idea of the size of the ancient city. The phrase sounds like it could refer to the length of time that it took to travel through the city, or or maybe even to travel around it, but that doesn't square with what we know about the actual physical size of the city. It it just wasn't nearly that big.
1: So I could jog across a good deal faster. Uh, You
0: you really could. Uh, So these English translations that offer, it took three days to go through it or, or whatever, they kind of, I think, push the language a little bit too far. There is an interesting theory on the three days walk that relates to ancient Near Eastern diplomacy and hospitality. The suggestion is that when an emissary from one country went to a major city in another country, the protocol would be a three-day affair. Ah, okay. The first day would be the arrival, the day that the diplomat or the emissary would arrive with an announcement of the visitor's presence. Then the second day would involve an official audience with whatever relevant high-ranking leader would be involved in whatever business that he had to bring forward. All of that would be heard by the host city. And then on the third day, the response to the petition or whatever news was brought would be given, and the ambassador would be sent back home to deliver that response.
1: I kind of like that. That means when the embassy shows up, I know that I'm going to have at least 24 hours to think about a response before I send it back.
0: Yeah, that that seems to be sort of the protocol. A city of a three-day's walk then would be a city important enough that formal diplomatic protocols would be in place. Okay. Now, that's an interesting idea, and it makes a lot of sense, and it has a lot going for it, but there isn't a whole lot of historical evidence that this was the way things were working in this particular setting at this time. We just don't know.
1: Well, another proposal here is the idea that three days was required not by social custom, but by God. So in this sense, it was a way of God expressing what was expected of Jonah, that Jonah was supposed to spend significant time in Nineveh doing his job, whether a literal three days or a figurative period of significant time that pointed perhaps to the thoroughness that God expected Jonah to exercise in proclaiming God's message. In other words,
0: it's not just go and say this, but you've got to make sure make sure everybody's heard it. Right. Uh, thoroughness right. is a good word here. This is what God expected. Jonah, when you go and do this, I expect you to do a good job. (laughs) I expect you to do a thorough job. Now, the Hebrew text itself doesn't really signal that the three days journey language is part of God's commission rather than a description of the city. But it's a reasonable proposal and it's worth consideration. I, I think probably the most likely sense of this three days walk is simply that it's an idiom for a long distance. It's figurative for a long journey, which may be pointing the reader to the journey that Jonah had to travel in order to bring God's word to these non-Israelite people living far away from the promised land.
1: That leaves me wondering, presumably this doesn't include the detour that Jonah took on his way here. <laughs> right.
0: Right, right. We know it was at least six days, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the flip side, in the
1: next verse, we learn that Jonah began by going a day's walk into the city. So a one-day walk likely functions in the same figurative way to mean a short journey. So the idea would be that Jonah had only just started into the city with this message, and boom, we get the Ninevites' reaction right away. In verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. So if we ask, Wow, what did Jonah tell them? Well, the message, the, the prophecy in the book is this sentence, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown or <laughs> overturned. Uh-huh. That's it. That's the substance of the prophecy as reported by the book of Jonah. Uh, John, this has got to be the shortest prophecy in any of the prophets.
0: <laughs> right. The very short summary message that is reported in the book of Jonah really begs the question, what exactly does that message mean when God sends a prophet to say something like this right. to to anyone? It sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? It's like the prophet is saying, well, okay, folks, I just want you to know that you're doomed. <laughs> I'm giving you a heads up. You've got 40 days and then it's over. That's it. The city's destroyed and the clock starts now. Boom. Well... <laughs> well Hey, you know, that's probably a pretty exciting message to Jonah. Yeah. I mean, does doesn't that sound like a message that Jonah would have been all too <laughs> that's happy what he to bring?
1: To say, yes. Yeah,
0: why why wouldn't he have dived headfirst into that kind of a project? Just tell him it's over and sit back and watch the fireworks. Right. But that's not at all how this kind of prophecy worked. And Jonah knows this. Okay. Where God is concerned, there is always hope. Old Testament prophecy always, always contained an element of hope. Those who read the Old Testament and who just dip their toes into part of Old Testament prophecy and read judgment oracles and never get around to the message of hope that goes with them miss the point of the whole thing. They're the ones who say, Ron, and I know you've heard this too, (laughs) the ones who say, I don't like or I don't read the Old Testament prophets because it's all such gloom and doom. Not so. Okay. When I hear that, I know that I'm listening to someone who hasn't actually read the prophets (laughs) all the way through because they've only seen part of the message. There's a whole lot more and that more is hope and it is always present.
1: Well, John, at this point, I know you have pointed to some places that make this crystal clear. Can you give us one of those examples?
0: I think Jeremiah 18, 7 to 8, sums it up perfectly. Okay. There he says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent— and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned.
1: All right, and you've made the point that Jonah should have known going into this
0: that this is the case when it comes to prophecy. Jonah knew exactly what prophecy was about, how it worked, and what the substance of the message that he was delivering was. He didn't need to say the rest because it was contained in the message that he delivered. Of course— we could just be reading a summary, as I noted yeah, before. Uh, in the, we, we, there may have been an entire sermon, and this, is, this was the substance of the sermon. But that's neither here nor there, because right. what the ancient Israelite reader would have taken in by this message was, you've got a choice, Nineveh.
1: So what Jonah did was deliver that initial announcement that Nineveh was in trouble. And to go back to the opening of the book, that trouble, in a sense, had come to God's attention. The prophetic form that he used included implicitly, if not explicitly, whether we have a summary here or not, it included the opportunity for repentance and the very real hope that what was announced would not come to pass, whether or not Jonah himself shared that hope. (laughs) The announcement was contingent and said, You have 40 days to turn this around. Of course, we know that's how Nineveh understood it. Otherwise, Why bother to respond to the message at all, let alone in the way
0: that they did. The response of Nineveh is really, really interesting, isn't it? Let's pause there and talk about that a minute. Jonah was just getting started doing his prophetic duty, right? He was only, he was only one day in, in a sense, but the, the Ninevites kind of beat him to it. They seemed all too eager to repent and to avoid the judgment that Jonah warned about. In fact, The response is narrated here in chapter three in an extreme fashion. The people began fasting and wearing the very uncomfortable sackcloth that was a common symbol for contrition or for mourning, and the people began doing that even before the king hears about it. Now, I'll just do a quick aside, Ron. The word for king here doesn't always mean the ruler of a nation. Okay, This could be the king of Assyria, the emperor, or it could be the chief ruler of the province of Nineveh, or just the ruler of the city itself.
1: Okay. Somebody in charge.
0: Whoever's in charge in the city at that time could carry the Hebrew word king. And this ruler decreed officially that the people should start doing what they're already doing, uh, basically. Got it. <laughs> the, right. the ruler sees what's going on and is immediately on board and makes an official decree that this is the official position of Nineveh, and that this is what they're going to continue to do. The details of the response to God's announcement through Jonah included such a thorough appeal to God's mercy that it included fasting from food and water and wearing sackcloth, not only on the part of the people, but by the animals as well. And that's really remarkable and unusual.
1: Right. Now, presumably the
0: animals weren't wearing sackcloth. They were just sharing in the fasting. Uh, and yeah, uh, and, and and we don't know how this may be a, just a stylized way of saying that this repentance was thoroughgoing. Right. And the people, the king of Nineveh instructs, are to call out to God. Now, that means one thing. They're to pray for God's mercy. They seem to understand what they need to turn from. Right. They they seem to get the purpose of all of this. Now, either they knew that already, or it was part of Jonah's message that isn't recorded here. Yeah. But the king calls everyone to turn from their, quote, evil ways Mm -hmm. and their, quote, violence.
1: Based on the response, you got to admit that's a fairly receptive audience, Yeah, which sure seem like this is every preacher's dream, that those who <laughs> hear the message will <laughs> drop everything and throw themselves into a humble Amen. response. <laughs> of course, we know that the power of God is at work here. And if we've been paying attention, we also know that there is something about all this that has been appointed
0: by God in God's sovereignty. Regardless of how we look at it, We want to remember a few things that go along with the time in which this story seems to be set. Remember from the first episode on Jonah, when we introduced the book and some of its background, Assyria, where Nineveh was located, was experiencing a time of weakness in terms of its imperial power and in terms of its internal politics. They were struggling on several fronts. They were facing a new emerging power to the north and a weakening political situation inside the country. This might cause them to question why the gods were unhappy with them from their perspective in the same way that the sailors asked that question in chapter one when the storm came up against them at sea. What do the gods want with us? What have we done wrong? Second, in addition to that kind of uneasiness that may have existed in Assyria, according to extra-biblical Mesopotamian sources from about that time, both an earthquake and a solar eclipse had recently occurred in that region. Now, Assyrians were very superstitious, just like a lot of ancient cultures. And from the perspective of omens, which they continuously look for and and which— these people took very seriously a violent shaking of the earth along with a blocking out of the sun. (laughs) That was pretty bad news. Uh, Disastrous news in fact, and they were probably shaking in their sandals (laughs) at at what might be coming given these very, very dark and ominous omens. If we can take these elements of historical background into account Nineveh would have been a city ripe for a hopeful word from any god. Okay. Would they have been open to the authoritativeness of Jonah's message? I mean, a foreign prophet speaking for a foreign god? I'd say so under the circumstances. But in any case, according to the story, they took it well and jumped headfirst into responding to it in hope that they could avert the disaster.
1: I suspect it's worth noting at this point that as far as we can tell, we're not looking at a full-scale conversion to a singular faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, while all other gods were rejected. That's not typically the way polytheistic societies responded and you might remember the sailors in chapter one when the sea went calm they had called out to god to yahweh and then sacrificed to and worshiped god but probably not as a sign of abandoning their previous religious beliefs they just added to them so here in nineveh too the people choose to obey jonah's god and respond based on that revelation that they had received through the prophet that god sent The big question comes at the end of the description of Nineveh's response when the king asks, who knows, maybe God will relent. They can hope for God's deliverance, but they cannot expect it or demand it. God alone decides. So this is in keeping with ancient Near Eastern belief as well. The final decision was up to the God involved. So Nineveh turns, hopes, and waits. And as the chapter closes, we get a flash forward and we learn the outcome. It says very simply and directly, when God saw what they, the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it.
0: So in chapter three, we see the full prophetic cycle play out. Yeah, Ron, you've probably figured out by now that I just absolutely love the way that this story is told. Okay. (laughs) And as you say, in chapter three, we see the prophetic cycle play out, but the story isn't over because while the narrator has given us, the readers, the outcome at the end of chapter three, we know what's going to happen. Jonah doesn't yet know what's going to happen. So remember, the announcement was 40 days, whether that's intended to be understood as a literal 40 or a, or figuratively as a complete cycle of time. Either one's possible, and there there's not a lot at stake as to which it is. That 40 days has to expire in order for God's final verdict to be known for sure. When chapter 4 opens... That period of time has not yet elapsed, so Jonah doesn't know the result for sure yet. But as we as we mentioned at the end of chapter 3, the reader gets a sneak peek at the outcome that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is everything that Jonah feared and everything that Nineveh hoped for.
1: Well, as we discussed earlier, we've gotten some strong suggestions that the story isn't just about God's interaction with Nineveh. It's also about God's interaction with Jonah and how Jonah responds. So let's think about that for just a second. God has taught Jonah a couple of things. One, he now knows he cannot ignore God's will. That just won't work. Second, he knows that God's will includes mercy, forgiveness, and rescue, and not just for him and for the Israelites. The Ninevites' repentance proved that God could and would save even people as wicked as those Ninevites over Mm -hmm. there, as far as Jonah was concerned. This is consistent with what we learn elsewhere in scripture, God gives us choices and makes repentance and salvation possible. In the New Testament, we have the letters, uh, Timothy and Peter, and they tell us outright that God's desire is for all people to come to know the truth about who God is, to come to repentance and to be saved. And when those New Testament authors are saying that, they're saying something that's perfectly consistent with the message that was in the Old Testament as well. God exercises God's power through grace. And one of the ways that grace shows itself is through a willingness to deliver those who genuinely repent and turn to God. This is the way that God has chosen to work, not because he has to, but because that's what God's heart is like.
0: Hmm. Jonah is so much more than a fish story. And there's (laughs) much more to come in the fourth and final chapter of this amazing book. Chapter four may be for us the most convicting And challenging part of the story, I think. I hope we'll be able to get it all in with just one more episode to go, Ron. Join us next time as we listen in to the first time in this book that God and Jonah converse, and to the conclusion of this story that will set a challenging choice before all of us that we won't be able to ignore
1: on that cliffhanger is where we need to wrap up this particular episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening.